turn for our reading this evening to the Psalms in the prose version in the middle of our Bibles, and we read together Psalm number 61. The title indicates a Psalm of David. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Then many of the translations, you'll see the little word Selah there, and scholars aren't all that sure exactly its significance. It could be a musical direction. Some think it has the idea of stop and think uh, about what you've been reading. Uh, But it's there, and we include it in the translation. For you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Increase the days of the king's life. His years for many generations. May he be enthroned in God's presence forever. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. Then will I ever sing praise to your name and fulfill my vows day after day. A comment that's very often made in pastoral visits to Older folk are housebound, or perhaps those with long-term illness, they'll often say, I really miss getting to church. Maybe you said that yourself on occasion, but certainly I've heard that many times over the years in my ministry. I really miss getting to church. Now, of course, we know we can worship God anywhere. He's the infinite, eternal God. Wherever we are, we can worship him. And yet, the place where the Lord's people uh, gather for worship has particular significance. And the body of his people comes together to worship the Lord. Uh, There is a special dimension to that. Uh, And it's a good sign and it's a healthy sign uh, when we miss that, if we are not able to be part of the worshiping community. Not to be able to gather with the church of Jesus Christ is like a kind of spiritual exile. We're not in our homeland. We're not where we we know we belong. And so we miss it. David the psalmist would have understood that outlook. It would seem when he wrote Psalm 61, we're not told the circumstances, but We can read between the lines, we can listen to what he says, and make our deductions. It seems when he wrote Psalm 61, he was in a kind of of exile, separated from the place of worship. From the ends of the earth, I call to you, he says uh, in verse 2. Whatever his particular circumstances were, we don't know them, we'll come back to think a little about the possibilities in a moment, but whatever they were, he feels at a distance, separated from the sanctuary, the place of worship, tabernacle, separated from the the community 
of the Lord's people, maybe even a sense of separation from the Lord. That perhaps it's one of those times in the experience of a child of God when he seems to be at a distance. And we know those times, uh, and they can be very difficult. But out of that difficult experience that David recounts in this very short psalm, uh, we do have a song uh, that we can take and use as our own when we're passing through difficult and trying circumstances. These songs are not just antiquarian pieces of literature. These are God's word to us today. They're for the good of our souls. And so as we come uh, to look at Psalm 61, uh, we want to be seeking what the Lord has to say to us, what blessing he has for us in this psalm. So we're looking at Psalm 61, and we've given it the title, The Rock That Is Higher Than I. The Rock That Is Higher Than I. Because really that's the, the center of the psalm. That is what really matters to David, as we'll see. So as we look at Psalm 61 and just work our way verse by verse through the psalm, the first thing we see very obviously is urgent prayer. Urgent prayer. David's in difficult circumstances, as we have said. He's passing through a time of trial. But what comes naturally to David in that trial is to turn to the Lord. He may not understand precisely what God is doing or why he's allowed these circumstances. I'm sure we can identify with that. His first inclination is to turn to the Lord. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. Uh, and there is a real sense of urgency in his request. Uh, it wouldn't be wrong to translate uh, the opening of the psalm uh, where he's asking God to hear my ringing cry. The word has that sense of something uh, that is loud, that is urgent, that is seeking attention. Uh, David, as it were, isn't whispering in a corner. Uh, there's an urgency. There's nothing low-key uh, about his prayer, about his cry to the Lord. This is something that weighs on him and something uh, that really matters to him. And so he cries out to the Lord. Uh, and of course, uh, if we go back into the culture of Bible times, uh, silent prayer really wasn't how people approached God. They would pray aloud. Uh, that's why Daniel, uh, praying when it was forbidden, was heard by others because he didn't pray silently. People prayed aloud. Uh, and so here, probably literally, it is a loud cry that David utters. Inevitably, of course, we start to wonder, well, when was the psalm written? There are psalms whose headings indicate particular circumstances, and we sought to tie 
uh, those psalms in as we worked our way through First and Second Samuel, for example. Uh, we're not given a clue in the title, but yet uh, as we work through the psalm and we listen to what David uh, is saying, we wonder, well, when in David's life might words like this have been written? It could well be uh, that the period is that of Second Samuel 17, the time when Absalom led a revolt uh, and when David and those who were loyal to him fled from Jerusalem. They literally left the city uh, and they went off uh, into, well, as far as they were concerned, exile for who knew how long. And it certainly would fit that time in David's life. Now, we can't be sure. Uh, there may be some other time, some other circumstances. Uh, we aren't even necessarily uh, aware of a particular time because, of course, First uh, and Second Samuel aren't exhaustive. They're things that they include, things they, the books leave out. But it could well be when David was fleeing from Absalom, his son, in some ways, one of the lowest points in David's life, his own son, uh, leading a revolt against him, and he had to flee Jerusalem. But whatever the circumstances, he feels he is at the, the ends of the earth, maybe not literally, but certainly metaphorically. He feels at a distance from the place of worship, perhaps at a distance from God himself. And it is a tough time that he's going through. Look at what he writes in verse 2. I, he says, call as my heart grows faint. He's struggling. He feels his strength ebbing away. And trials, of course, you know, can have that kind of effect on us, can't they? They can be tremendously draining in all kinds of ways. We go through hard, testing circumstances, and we can feel strength ebbing away from us, maybe physically, emotionally, and almost inevitably also then spiritually. And our, our spirits, our souls, our hearts, it's all the same thing in the Bible, can feel faint. And maybe we feel we're at a point where we can't go on much longer. And it seems that's the case uh, for David. And of course, especially if the trials are prolonged. Sometimes the short, sharp trial we can cope with better. It's the long, drawn-out struggle, maybe with illness or temptation or whatever it may be, that is harder often to bear. And we can feel our hearts growing faint. David certainly did. And he knows his own resources are inadequate. That comes home to him very powerfully. His own resources are inadequate. And he needs, at this particular time, what he describes as the rock that is higher than I. What's the rock? 
Maybe it's the sanctuary in Jerusalem where the tabernacle was and the the hill of Zion, possibly. But I think the rock that's higher than David is the Lord himself. He's the rock. And so often in Scripture, and in the Psalms particularly, God is referred to as a rock. I think that's what is in David's mind here. God is the rock that's higher than David. And he asked God to lead him to the rock because it requires God's action to deliver David. He's not going to be able to do it himself. He's not going to climb the rock himself. He hasn't the strength. He needs the Lord. He's at the end of his own resources. And of course, God in his providence from time to time brings us to the end of our own resources to help us to learn that point. It's easy when things are relatively easy to think, I've got the strength to cope. I can manage. And I'll keep God for emergencies. And sometimes God brings us to the point where we have no strength. And our own resources are so obviously inadequate The only thing we can do is cry out to the Lord for his help. And in our trials, like David, we need to turn to the Lord. Now, there may be things we can do and need to do in a time of testing, but first of all, our natural inclination must be to turn to the Lord and seek his help. And as we've often uh, said, and you see it again in this psalm, when we come to the Lord in those times, we can be absolutely honest with him and not pretend. Well, what's the point of pretending to God when he knows every corner of your heart better than you do? And yet sometimes we do try and pretend. We can be honest with the Lord as David is. No pretensions to having strength or ability. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And we need the Lord to lead us to the rock that he himself is. There is the one we need in all our times of testing. Urgent prayer. Can you identify with David as he writes... These words, have you known those times when your heart's fainting and you know you're at the end of your resources? Do you turn to the Lord? Do you seek that he will lead you to the rock that's higher than you are? Urgent prayer. Secondly, divine protection. Divine protection. Because in this time of trial now, David looks to the Lord in faith. This is the God who has given so many promises of his presence and his care. Our minds might immediately turn to a verse like Hebrews 13 and verse 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's actually an Old Testament promise. Deuteronomy 31 verse 6, same promise. And David has those promises to encourage him to come to the Lord in faith. 
And the language, as always in the Psalms, the language that David uses to describe God is tremendously significant. You see how David thinks of his God. God is a rock, strong, a place of security. Isn't that where the fortresses are built on rock? Good foundation, usually raised up above the enemy to give greater security. The Lord is a rock to his people. Above all the the threats that do come to us as his people. He's a refuge, a place of safety. Of course, the the different pictures are, are, are linked. They're not totally separate, but each of them contributes something. A refuge, a place where David and where the people of God can go, where they're safe, where they can lay down the burdens, they escape from the threats that are around them. You think even in in Ireland, you've seen them, sure, often the round towers in different places. Uh, And one of the main purposes of those towers was a place of refuge, that when the enemy came, maybe the Vikings or whoever, people could retreat into the tower as a place of refuge. God is the refuge for his people. And he is a strong tower. David uses that term of God as well, a place to be sheltered from the enemy because the enemies are real. Enemies of all kinds. It may be physical enemies. And for some of God's people, as we were praying for persecuted Christians, it may be very visible, clear enemies. But whether we can see them or not, we know uh, that the devil is like a roaring lion, as Peter describes him, going around looking for someone to devour. We need a strong tower where the enemy cannot reach us. That's God. He's a rock, he's a refuge, he's a strong tower, he's a tent. Maybe you think, well, after a strong tower, a tent is a pretty fragile kind of place to shelter. If you had a choice when the enemy was pursuing them, you between a strong tower and a tent, you'd probably pick the strong tower if you'd any sense. So why a tent? But I think here that the language now is the language of the family. The tent is the place where the family come together. It's it's actually more personal than the rock and the tower that we've been thinking about. The tent where the family gather. And I think very probably also the idea of the tabernacle. The sanctuary, the place of worship, the place where God was especially among his people. I think that was also in David's mind. Where would you be more safe than in God's very presence in the tabernacle, in the tent? And he then finally thinks of the shelter of God's wings. It's becoming more and more personal as he goes on. It's the picture of the mother bird 
spreading uh, her wings over her young to shelter them from the circling predators. And again, it's a, it's a picture that recurs a number of times in the Psalms. The mother bird sheltering her young. This is certainly the most personal of the, the expressions of God's loving care that David uses here. God is a mother bird sheltering his people, standing between them and the danger and the enemy. They're not facing the enemy on their own. God intervenes with his wings to give protection. It's full of encouragement. If we turn that picture over in our minds and think of each of these descriptions, a rock, refuge, a strong tower, a tent, the shelter of his wings, and add them all together. What reassurance and what comfort David's words should give us. He's praying on the basis of who God is and what God has done. That's always what God's people should do. Think to yourself, who is God? What does he say about himself? And think, what has God done? Done for the salvation of his people and done for me as one of his children. David refers, verse 5, to his vows. For you have heard my vows. What vows? Surely tokens of David's heart commitment to this God. This is not some God far away. But this is the God David has committed himself to, his vows, his covenant commitment to the Lord. And so in that context of David's commitment that he says, you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Of course, heritage is an important and a wonderful word in the Bible. The heritage, the inheritance, first of all, was Canaan, of course, as God promised it to Abraham and his descendants uh, back in Genesis 17. But in the widest sense, the inheritance includes all the blessings that God provides for his people, all the covenant mercies of God who gives himself to us. That's a wonderful thing about God's covenant. It's not, first of all, the things God gives us, though those are precious, but God gives himself to us. And he's everything we need. The inheritance is the Lord himself. And that, of course, is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We read about it in 1 Peter 1, the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for us who are kept by God's power for the day of salvation. The inheritance is in Christ. Indeed, the inheritance is Christ. And God provides it all for us richly. We have so much reason to trust his provision for us. What more could we need? And what more could we have? Urgent prayer. Divine protection. Thirdly, we have royal prospects. Royal prospects. 
David's thought takes in verse 6 what might seem to us a very odd turn. Suddenly after the prayers for God's care, protection, inheritance, etc. Increase the days of the king's life. Do you find that puzzling? Do you think, why now is David suddenly writing about the king and the king's life and all of this? What's that got to do with David's time of trial and and trouble? It doesn't seem to, to fit. And remember, of course, David is writing this as the king. He is praying, in fact, for himself in the third person, the king, and himself that he's praying for and praying about. But it's more than himself. That's what we need to see. Because he refers to many generations. He refers to blessing forever. This is far beyond David's day. This is not just one little short life of an earthly king. It's not simply himself that David is praying for, but he's taken the long vision. Surely he is praying here for the line of kings that God has promised would come from him. Turn up 2 Samuel 7. And there God promises he will build a house for David. What kind of a house? A line of kings. And surely that is what David now has in mind. God's promise that after him there would be another king and another and another. And here is David in the midst of his own troubles and his own hardships looking beyond that to think of God's bigger purpose into which David and his troubles and his blessings fit. David is a little piece of a big jigsaw. And the big jigsaw is the eternal plan of God to provide redemption and to provide a king. Here is David amazingly in the midst of his trials with a bigger vision than just a concern for deliverance from his trials. Now he prays for them as we can pray for deliverance from our trials and pray for our needs. But like David, we also need a bigger vision of God and God's purpose into which each of us slots. And that's what David is praying about. He's concerned even more than being delivered from his troubles with the fulfillment of God's plan and purpose. The provision of redemption. The provision of a king. He prays for the king to be enthroned in God's presence. This is God's man. This line of kings will be God's men. Praying for a secure reign. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. And David, as he struggles and as he cries out for God's help, is also seeking that the great plan of God will be brought to fulfillment and God will keep his promises as David had them in 2 Samuel 7. What was all that to say to us? How is that relevant to us as believers today? We can understand the praying uh, that God would deliver us, that God would give grace and help, but what about 
this praying about the king and his reign and all the rest of it, how do we relate to that? I think, in fact, the answer is quite simple. Because the line of kings that God had promised to David were leading up to one particular king. King Jesus, Messiah. Remember how often as we worked our way through First and Second Samuel, we asked the question, where's this going? And the answer was always the same. It's leading to Jesus. And that's the case here. Where is this leading, this prayer about the king and long life and many generations and all of that? It's leading to Christ, the king. Ultimately, it takes us straight to the Messiah, our Savior. Remember, for example, in Luke 1 and verse 32, there the text refers to Christ sitting on the throne of his father, David. There it is. He fulfills the promises to David of a king the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a lesson for us in that. Not only the fact, of course, it's from King Jesus that we get the help and the grace and the strength and the deliverance we need. Of course, that's wonderfully true. But it's also a reminder that even in the midst of our trials and our testing times, and it's right and it's proper to pray for the help we need in that specific situation, Perfectly right and proper. There is also a place for remembering that God also has a bigger plan than just our lives and our concerns. The big picture. The working out of God's plan of salvation through the work of Christ into which each one of us, each one of God's children fits. And so our concern as believers, is not only to be for deliverance from trials so that we may continue to serve God, but also that we are concerned that God's great plan will go forward and it will be fulfilled in every detail. And it all focuses on the Lord Jesus. We're reminded in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 25, he must reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet. That's a glorious vision that we should have. The day will come when King Jesus will have all his enemies, including death, we thought about that this morning, under his feet. And that should move our hearts. That should stir us to pray that even when we struggle and we're going through tough times and times of trial and we're praying about those things, we don't forget there is a bigger picture into which we ourselves and our struggles and our trials fit. Now, we may have no idea how our particular struggles fit into the purpose of God how they advance the fulfillment of his plan. Most of the time we are so limited in our understanding, we we can't figure that out. But God knows. 
And we have the assurance that our trials and our struggles do contribute to the fulfillment of God's plan. And we can pray about that and we can ask God to keep on working out his purpose in us and in the bigger picture of his plan of salvation. Royal prospects take us straight to Christ the King, our King, the one who gives us the grace and the strength and all the blessings we need, and the one in whom God's big plan is being fulfilled. And no doubt a day will come, perhaps, when we're in glory, when we'll understand a great deal more about how our struggles and our trials fitted into God's plan. We've sometimes said, I think, there'll be things we'll never understand. They'll be too deep and they'll be too complicated for us ever to grasp. But we'll not worry about that. And there'll be so much we will understand. And we'll see how this testing time and this trial and this difficulty and this burden in the wonderful providence and plan of God fitted in to fulfill his purpose. And we should be praying for that even as we pray for our own individual particular struggles. Takes us straight to King Jesus. Royal prospects. Urgent prayer. Divine protection. Royal prospects. And then the very end of the psalm, just in a word, faithful praise. Psalm ends with commitment. Then will I sing praise to your name. That's how it all ends. That's where it leads for David. Now, he's not yet delivered from his trials, as far as we can tell. There are still struggles to be faced. It's not that David prays, and suddenly everything's fine, and it's all brightness and sun, and he's singing praise to God. As far as we can see, still he's in the midst of the trials, and yet I will sing praise to you. That's his focus on the Lord. By, by God-given faith, David commits himself to praise God. He looks forward in faith to God answering his prayer. Godly confidence in the Lord. And that he knows is how he should respond to what God has done for him and what God will do for him. And he'd praise God for his answer. Now, what that answer may be could be quite difficult to accept. God might say to David, this trial is going to continue for some time. As he says sometimes to us as his children, we pray for deliverance. And the answer we want is God immediately to remove the trial. And yet God's answer may be, this is going to carry on for a time but I'll give you the grace. Like Paul, you remember the thorn in the flesh three times, Lord, take it away, and God didn't. But he gave grace to live with it. And so whatever the answer the Lord gives, maybe instant deliverance, maybe soon deliverance, maybe after a long time deliverance, we will praise God whatever answer he gives. 
We'll fulfill our vows like, like David, vows of commitment to God, to love him, to serve him, to be a faithful disciple. When the Lord answers our prayers for our own trials and our difficulties, and when the Lord answers in the working out of his great plan, and we know he will bring it to fulfillment when the Lord Jesus returns, we're to be praising people. We acknowledge God's grace. We acknowledge the help and the deliverance we got came from him. Remember the, the, the ten lepers that Jesus healed. Only one of them came back. Nine of them never thought to come to give thanks. One of them did. We must be very careful we're not among the nine. God helps us and we're relieved and we just go on and forget that it was God who gave the grace and blessing and strength and whatever he provided. We're to be praising people. Praising people and obedient people. That's the point of the vows, the commitments to obey the Lord. Fruit of grace. We need a rock that's higher than we are. We often need that rock, and God is the rock. And how wonderful it is when he leads us there and he gives us the refuge and the strong tower and the tent and spreads his wings over us. And it all flows from Christ our King, the one for whom God's great and glorious purpose is designed and in whom it's fulfilled. Even in trials, before God removes them, we've so much for which to praise him. And the Lord does bring trials. He's told us he will. You know it, I know it. But here's a God who'll never fail us. Here's a God who is a rock higher than we are. And we must be earnestly and often praying that God will lead us to the rock. And there we'd be safe.